Welcome to the newest conversation at the Review of Democracy. I am Ferenc Lotso, and it is my pleasure to host Lea Uppi today. Welcome to the show, Lea, and thank you so much for agreeing to discuss your memoir, Free, with us today. Thank you, Ferenc, for having me in the show. Uh, Lea Uppi is a professor in political theory uh, in the government department of the London School of Economics. Her main research interests lie in normative political theory, including democratic theory, theories of justice, and issues of migration and territorial rights. She's also greatly interested in the Enlightenment and enlightened political thought, in Marxism and critical theory, as well as in nationalism uh, in the intellectual history of Southeastern Europe. She is the author of Global Justice and Avant-Garde Political Agency, which was released back in 2011, The Meaning of Partisanship, which she co-authored with Jonathan White back in 2016, and The Architectonic of Reason, Purposiveness and Systemic Unity in Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, which should be out this week as well, just like Lea's fascinating memoir, Free, Coming of Age at the End of History, which we shall focus on during our conversation today. And now you mentioned in your epilogue uh, to Free, Elea, that you were going to write a philosophical book about the overlapping ideas of freedom in the liberal and socialist traditions. But then when you started writing the actual book, ideas turned into people and the book ended up being about the people who made you who you are. The book also recurrently plays with the idea of biography and refers to its clear importance, but also partly unfathomable meaning to a child uh, in Albania before 1990. So let me formulate my first question in a general way. What does it mean to discuss ideas via people and how do the characters in the book and their biographies help you reflect on those overlapping ideas of freedom? Um. Yeah, so as you say, the project started as a project which was going to be about the idea of freedom in the liberal and socialist tradition. And one of my long-standing convictions has been that while many people tend to think about socialist ideas as promoting concepts of equality and justice and of liberal ideas as being interested in freedom, I have always tended to read uh, Marx, the socialist tradition from Marx onwards as promoting the same ideas of freedom that are philosophically at the core of liberalism, but just radicalizing them even further, and in some ways showing the limitations of liberal theories and uh, the way in which, for example, concepts of freedom get applied in a limited and exclusive way only to particular categories of people, while the socialist tradition tries to radicalize this idea of freedom and to talk about freedom of the individual that is in some ways connected to the freedom of the collective and to see this relationship between the, the individual and the collective in a more dialectical way. And I also wanted to write about socialism and liberalism in a way that didn't separate the historical experiences of these systems from the way in which they are discussed in philosophical thought. So often we tend to think, in, especially in normative political theory, which is what I've been working on mostly, we tend to engage with ideas as just ideas. And we try to just defend the value of ideas and to think about the merits of limitations of different worldviews. And I'm also interested in the history of philosophy and also in history 
more generally. And so I've always been interested also in seeing how ideas get reflected in institutions and how in some ways these institutions either betray or depart from the original intentions embedded in the promotion of these ideas. And so I wanted to write about both liberalism and socialism in a way that wasn't completely divorced from particular historical and institutional setups. And so, and I also wanted to write about both of them in a way that was not blinded to the way in which the historical experiences of these ideas have had their limitations, their problems, the often um, backfired. And so I began to write this book and, or, or to conceive this book as a book about the relationship between liberalism and, and socialism. And then I realized that the more I thought about it, the more examples I tried to bring about and thinking about, for example, I don't know, the failures of democracy in the case of socialism or um, the failures of the promise of freedom in the case of liberal um, theories and liberal institutions, the more I kept thinking about concrete examples from the place I grew up in, the country I grew up in. And so the more the, the, the project became one of trying to connect these abstract philosophical thoughts with these concrete realities that I had known and of which I had not really thought about philosophically up to that point. I mean, obviously I grew up in a socialist state and so the, the ideology was around me, the concepts were around me. These ideas had been embedded in me from very early age because school was very politicized uh, in Albania during socialism. And so I was familiar with all this concept and, and the same thing went with all the ideas of freedom and liberalism that we worked with philosophically. These were also ideas of, you know, civil society or liberalization or opportunities for everyone um, that were part of the discourse in the post 90s in Albania. And so every time I kept thinking about, okay, how do these ideas get institutionalized? I had examples from my life and people that I had met that seemed to promote one version or the other of these different conceptions of freedom that were embedded in these systems. And so at that point, I felt that it would be Try, it, it, I thought it would be interesting to try and write this book in a way that would be as accessible as possible and that would tell the story in a way that is not abstract and detached from history or from politics or from uh, real world institutions, but also that doesn't just do it in a way that, uh, you know, assesses the institutions or assesses the ideas in complete separation from real people. And I felt that doing it via this biographical route that you described was a productive way of doing it insofar as it enabled me to connect always examples and, and lived realities with these thoughts, these more abstract thoughts. Uh, that's fascinating. And I also wish to ask you a bit about the voice you are using in Free, the book. You mentioned at one point that, and I'm quoting, five years after the fall of socialism, episodes of our life back then had become part of the repertoire of amusing family anecdotes. Uh, it didn't matter if the memories were absurd, hilarious, or painful, or all of these at once. My impression was that much of your book is written in precisely this kind of mode as well, uh, combining uh, the absurd, the hilarious, and the painful uh, in an imp impressive and slightly unusual way. Now, would you agree with that perception of mine? And would you care to comment more generally on the voice you are using uh, in the memoir? Yeah, I think you're right that uh, the voice conveys the, the realities that surrounded me that were all of them at the same time. 
in part because I tried to make a very conscious effort of not having a kind of authorial voice that was superimposed on the voices of the characters in the book. So I wanted, because it was a book about freedom and because it ended up a book which was going to be about freedom through this more biographical way of writing, I didn't want to be paternalistic in the way in which I was um, exploring ideas through characters, in part because I think when you write a biography, there's always a risk of imposing on other people your views or you know, your interpretations or even being judgmental on why people hold certain ideas. And I knew I was writing on a very controversial topic and I knew it was going to be especially controversial in Albania. And it was also a very divisive topic, you know, how we assess the legacy of socialism and liberalism, how you think about these two systems in connection to each other, I knew it was going to be difficult for those that I was writing about to engage with this project in the way in which I wanted them to engage with the project, which was as open-minded as possible. And so it seemed like, to me, it seemed like a natural choice to write the book without having a sort of grown-up academic intellectual, someone who is interested in political theory, tell the story as that but rather to try and stand back as much as possible as an intellectual and to just let the characters speak for themselves and each of them present their ideas of freedom, their yearnings, why they uh, did certain things, why they were committed to certain views, what they found were, was a betrayal in certain cases, how they thought about oppression and all these things. So the book is written basically, to talk about the voice of the book, the book is written from the point of view of a young girl who is at the cusp of making this transition from childhood to adulthood and in a way whose personal and cognitive um, and emotional evolution coincides with the evolution or rather the revolution of the country from one political system to the other. And so it's a kind of coming of age story, both for the individual and for the country. And in both cases, it's a relatively traumatic coming of age, coming of age story. And in the, person, in the personal case, it's dramatic because you tend to learn these ideas of freedom and personal responsibility from the social environment in which you grow up. But in this case, the main sites of influence, so the family on the one hand and the state on the other, are in contrast with each other. So they, they, they have different ideas of what it means to lead a, a free life. Because I, as I explained in the book, I grew up in this dissident family without knowing it. And so I was equally subjected in a way to the formative influence of both the state and the family. And I was taught to be a good citizen and a good pioneer. But on the other hand, at home, I never knew that my ancestors, my grandfather, great grandfather and so on had all been dissidents and had all been on different sides of the political spectrum for different reasons. And they had and my family had had to suffer the repercussions. And of course, um, in a society that is divided by class, whether it's socialism or liberalism, which social class you come from shapes the opportunities you have in the future. And, and in my case, it was extreme because these social influence were very different. And so this is also why I think in the, and so the individual, this young girl who is kind of coming of age is pulled in different directions because of these different formative influences that she receives. And that's also why I think in the book, there is no unified interpretation of the purposes and of the motives of the different characters. And there's a conscious effort not to offer that unified interpretation, but rather the effort which this voice in which the book is written conveys is how to show how these different stories shape the self-understanding of someone who grows up in a context where different things are going on at once and trying to make sense of how these different things fit together or don't fit together. Great. Again, let us perhaps zoom in a bit on one of the crucial moments of the book. Again, towards the end of the first half, the conflict between your country 
and your family, if I may put it that way, is brought to light. Uh, you write that the patterns that shaped my childhood, that is to say your childhood, those invisible lows that had given structure to my life, my perception of the people whose judgments helped me make sense of the world, all these things changed forever in December 1990, end of quote. So you used to be a firm believer in a sense, uh, who also belonged to a culturally and also one should say politically distinguished family with your grandmother originally speaking to you in French rather than Albanian to take just one example. And you were 10, uh, 11 when you discovered that the history of your family, uh, in, that when you discovered the history of your family, including the fact uh, that you are the great granddaughter of a former prime minister of the country. So your family suddenly became a source of doubt and you in a sense had to reassess uh, your own life at the age of 10, uh, 11. So I, I wanted to ask you a bit about how you look back and reflect on the life strategies that members of your family followed uh, in your early youth, that is to say the 1980s, and how would you recall uh, that great moment of rupture uh, in your biography and how do you assess uh, its consequences? Um, so the, the last, the question about the consequences is a very difficult one because I feel that we absorb the consequences of these dramatic moments that we face in our childhood through, throughout our lives. And we respond to them in different ways at different points in time. And in a way, the book is one response to that and that perhaps the reception to the book will shape a different kind of response and what was going on in my philosophical research was a different kind of response yet again. What I remember from the time is a very big confusion about what I was being told and, uh, and, and the fact that I was subjected to these different stories about what was going on um, in school and at home. And so I remember this very distinctive moment where I used to talk to my moral education teacher in school about the protests that I had stumbled on sort of and, and what was going on in the country at the time, which were these um, movements led especially by students at the university in Tirana. And she called them hooligans. And the television, the state television was calling the protest hooligans as well. And then my parents, I, at one point I realized that they weren't calling them hooligans. And in fact, they had explained to me earlier that hooligans were people who were doing uh, horrible things in stadiums and were violent thugs and gangs and so on. They didn't really have any political motivation other than disrupting the civil order. But then I noticed that in my family, my parents and my grandmother were calling them something different. And so this was the lead up to this revelatory moment in December 1990, where for me, what really brought home the fact that this was a regime that needed to change was seeing on television, the secretary of the Albanian Labour Party, so the former communist party, say that we have to have political pluralism and we will have free elections. And for me, this was all very strange because I had always assumed that we had free elections because we had elections and we had lists of candidates and I had always seen my parents vote. And so I, Sometimes when you're in a system, when you're so embedded in, and brought up with the categories of that system and with no possibility of questioning and no possibility of having spaces of dissent that are articulated openly, it's actually very hard to, as a child, but I think also as a, maybe a teenager, it's actually very hard to question the categories in which you grow up with. You don't think, well, this is unjust or it's not right that we can't travel outside of Albania or it's not, you know, it's not, you don't know that there is lack of freedom because censorship is precisely that is the concealing of the opportunities to speak freely. And so you think whatever is being said is the truth and what is not being said, you don't know about as a child. 
uh, I think there is also other aspects of freedom as it applies to children compared to how it applies to adults, because for children, there are certain things which have to do with physical spaces or with trust in grown-ups or with your personal relations with neighbors or with friends or with school or whatever, which give you a very different perception of what freedom consists of compared to adults who need much more opportunities for exercising free thinking and so on. So to return to the identity question, I remember that there was this uh, lead up of confusion and sort of thinking about why the uh, adults are hesitating and that there were this noticing increasingly that there were hushings and you know that people were closing the door before speaking or that they were listening to the radio and turning it off when I went into a room and so on increasingly in those months I noticed that something was going on that was strange and then the, in, in December when you know the whole thing collapsed and my parents revealed this truth that they thought they thought was their truth and they said to me was my truth as well it was very hard to know who to trust because I had not experienced this oppression and persecution that they had experienced, in part because they had been so good at protecting me from experiencing it. And so they had created this shelter of protection, which was had been had worked in a way, in a way in which they wanted it to work, but which then, because things changed so radically, made it very difficult for me to engage immediately with what they were saying and to just believe in. Uh, in, in the fact that, you know, we've been in a, an oppressed country, which is not to say that I think I adjusted pretty quickly within the next few months. I was sort of, I believed what I was told. I believed that this was my family. I believed I had a very good relationship with my grandmother. So I trusted her when she said to me that, you know, these were the reasons for why we had to conceal these truths from you and so on. And I guess, uh, yeah, I don't know what this does to one's identity in the long term. I guess it, it, it does maybe cultivate a kind of skepticism about the, the, what you take to be the truth and also a tendency to think that what something is in itself different from how it appears and so that there is this yeah this dualism between appearance and essence in a way which maybe you think about very early on and i, I guess it's part partly played a role in my interest in philosophy later on uh, great we'll definitely want to talk about that as well uh, later on but first i wanted to talk a bit more about the second half of the book which focuses on the 1990s. Uh, and you mentioned at some point uh, in the narrative that uh, people were turned into victims at the time. You know, all the survivors were, so to say, declared winners and with no perpetrators, only ideas were left to blame. So as a result of that entire categories of thought disappeared practically overnight, uh, you claim. Uh, and at the same time, you draw several remarkable parallels, I should say, between the pre-1990 and the post-1990 ways of thinking uh, in Albania, not least the way uh, shock therapy was conceived, again, much like the dictatorship of the, of the proletariat before it as a kind of last great sacrifice uh, that needed to be made. So would you care to comment on how these liberal sounding concepts ended up filling the conceptual void after 1990? Yeah, so I think what happened in, uh, in, in partly in 1990 is to do precisely, I think the starting point is this very difficult, very complex web of responsibilities. And so one thing that we, I feel, don't talk enough about in this post-transition context is the way in which we often tend to blame traumatic changes and the oppression and the injustices that were perpetrated in different systems to the actions of particular individuals. 
and we just say you know it, it was the, the dictator or it was his circle or it was the sort of the party elite and so on but we don't realize that i think no system really survives with pure oppression there is a very large degree of complicity for the system to to work in that way and for that long for, for that long time it needs to find ways of stabilizing itself in part also to cope with these different moments of crisis that it faces. So if you look at the history of Albania, and Albania is just one example, it is the history of having these different alliances with different powers at different points in time. So it starts with a coalition with Yugoslavia, and then there is, you know, Soviet Union, then it breaks with the Soviet Union when the, during the destalinization campaign, and then it sort of uh, has this alliance with China and it breaks with China and so on. At all of these junctures, the party is in a crisis and there is an internal debate about, you know, and, and, and sort of an internal struggle, actually, which is also a power struggle about which route to take in which different individuals have to take different views and so on. Now, I think what enables particular elite groups to within those parties, coalitions, to prevail and to assert their will is, I think, the complicity of outsiders, so the people outside the, the protected circle, and what goes on in society more generally. And the same thing, you know, with spying or with regime. So I feel there is no oppressive society that really works by sheer oppression. For it to work, it needs to also have something else. And that something else is the collaboration, the cooperation of different individuals. The problem is that when there is a regime change, as there was in Albania in 1990s, it's very difficult to disentangle that web of complicity. And because, you know, you have people in your family, in your relatives, in, your, in the wider circle. And it's very difficult to, in a way, create justice that is, um, or, or rather, let me put it slightly differently, to have justice would come at the price of reconciliation. So there seems to be a clear choice to be made between do you want justice, historical justice, in terms of explaining who is responsible and who is a perpetrator and who is a victim and making amends for that, or do you want to have a society in which you know you go for reconciliation and um, an effort to create dialogue and to say, okay, now the past is the past, let's think about the future and let's have these categories in the future. Which means I think that it, this is also partly why people turned against ideas because they couldn't really turn against each other more than they had already done. And so then it was the ideas that became, you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat or Marx or whatever, and the books were just destroyed and in fact properly burned in 1990. And, and so the rage of the people turned to objects because it couldn't really turn to other people who thought differently or who had been collaborating in the system or uh, and it couldn't really turn to the truth of these social relations and so i think the, uh, the the result of that was that the whole system of thought collapsed without being questioned and was replaced by a new system of thought which was meant to be the promise of this kind of new liberal era and the same faith and the same belief in these categories that we had you know the dictatorship of the period or that some people had or the socialism or whatever all these messianic concepts that served to mobilize consent in socialism were replaced by alternative concepts that served to mobilize consent in liberalism, like, you know, civil society or free markets or the idea that the transition will be painful, but hopefully brief, the more radical the interventions are, the more. And this sounded very much, if you think about it, it still sounds, I think, very much like this request that the Socialist Party made about, you know, we need to make the sacrifices. We are aware of the difficulties. We are aware that some individuals are suffering from these consequences but this is all worth it in the name of the greater idea and i feel like the transition in the 90s took a similar path and a similar shape insofar as there were these new ideas that were supposed to deliver freedom 
And yet it was very obvious that it wasn't working for a lot of people. In fact, for the vast majority of people at that point, whether it was because people were making savings and putting them in these um, fraudulent financial schemes, which turned out to bankrupt, bankrupt the country, whether it was because everyone wanted to leave and there was massive consequences from the brain drain, high unemployment, uh, all the rise of all kinds of traffics, sex traffics, drugs, and so on. So all of these things were obvious negative repercussions of the way in which the transition was managed. Some of it, it wasn't just entirely the transition to blame. Obviously, some things had been carried forward from the previous, from the 80s and from the crisis and the economic crisis of the 80s. But still, the request to go through these reforms and the awareness that these were going to be very painful reforms, but it was all worth it in the name of this great idea, felt very much like the kind of horizon of liberation that had been very similar during socialism. It's just that the liberators were now different. My next question would be in many ways a follow-up to this one, you know, trying to talk about the same sort of question, but from a slightly a different angle. You write in the book that when aspirations of members of your family became reality, their dreams turned into your disillusionment, and that unlike them, you actually came to equate liberalism with broken promises the destruction of solidarity, uh, the right to inherit privilege, and also with turning a blind eye to injustice. So would you say that you notice different aspects of Western liberal capitalist societies because of your early years prior to 1990? Is there maybe some kind of special sensibility you would claim to possess having been raised under a different kind of political regime and socioeconomic system? Um, I don't think I had this sensibility at the time, and I don't think I had the intellectual categories to actually make sense of what, what, what was going on. So the, in a way, the interpretation that this was a failure of liberalism and the failure of the structural reforms and the uh, consequences of the shock therapy and so on, I don't think any of this was clear to me at the time. I think what was clear to me at the time was the discomfort of just daily life, ordinary life. So the fact that what I noticed was the fact that, you know, my best friend had disappeared, she wasn't there anymore, and she'd been, uh, she's, horrible things happened to her. Um, the fact that I couldn't go out and be free to, you know, hang, hang out with my friends in the evening, because my parents were always saying, you need to be careful, otherwise, you know, there will be, you'll be harassed on the streets, or it's going to be dangerous, or there's all this kind of uh, drug dealers and so on. The fact that when I went, for example, for the first time and traveled in the West, as I try and describe in the book, when I went to Greece with my grandmother, we had moved from being told we can't travel because we are, uh, you know, our state doesn't let us travel. You don't have a passport. And then I discovered that actually having a passport wasn't enough. You needed a visa for which your own state was not responsible. It was another state that was responsible. And so now suddenly it turns out that all these impediments to freedom of movement, which you had always internalized or you were told in 1990, this is we couldn't travel because we weren't allowed to travel. You discover that actually you can't travel because another state doesn't allow you to travel. And so there it's a similar form of constraint. Or that even when you travel, in Albania, we had grown up with all these queues and scarcity of goods and desiring these goods from, from the West. And then you go to the West and you realize that all the goods are there, but you actually can't buy it because you don't have money to buy it. So I remember a kind of thousands of little examples like that in which I felt that something was wrong and that you know something was not right in the world in which I was suddenly finding myself. But I don't think at the time I necessarily perceived it as you know, the failure of a system or the failure of different categories. 
I do remember though very clearly that my father, when he was um, he was working at the port of Duras at one point, he was a CEO there, and he was in charge of uh, uh, modernizing and bringing these structural reforms, which effectively meant that he had to lay off a lot of people. And he at the time felt very uncomfortable about that, and he brought it up in those terms. And in fact, I remember he was telling me that uh, you know we have been told that there are all these experts from the World Bank and the IMF that need to advise us on structural reforms. And they are asking me to fire 100 workers at the port. And actually, if I just refuse to have one of these experts, his salary is the amount of these 100 salaries that I'm being asked now to cut because of cutting of costs. And so he himself perceived this kind of dilemma. So sometimes the people around me, they had different understandings of what freedom required and different ideas of you know how to live in the in a free society and so on and they also noticed that, that that things weren't going on but in the case of my family i think there was a sense of acceptance about um the new world in a way they they were convinced that you know they had left behind the worst that the communist society was the worst that could have happened to them in their lives and i think for good reasons they thought that and they thought that way and that now everything else they made was little sacrifices on the way to actually realizing this dream of freedom. And I guess for me, it was more a question of just seeing that this dream of freedom is actually not really happening. It didn't, you know, it, it, to me, it looked like it was there under socialism, but clearly it turned out not to be for my family. And I was convinced of that eventually. And then during liberalism, my family was convinced that we were going to have it very soon. And I just didn't see it coming or I, I, I couldn't sort of bring myself to believe in it. So, but uh, yeah, and so I, I just remember the, I guess, the clarity of articulating this as a tale of sort of different systems and different systems that fail for different reasons and, and, and betray people for different reasons wasn't there at the time. What I remember was just kind of raw experience of, um, of things not being right, not going well in either of them. Now you close the, the book uh, uh video graduation from high school uh, during the Albanian civil war in 1997 uh, and also with your choice to study uh, philosophy at an Italian uh, university uh, and in this context you refer to your socialist friends from from your student days who basically did not really think that your own experiences back in the 1980s could in any way be significant to their own political beliefs so I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you relate to that unconcern with East European experiences? How did you relate to it then? And how would you relate to it now? And more generally, why did you actually choose to, to close your narrative there uh, around your 18th birthday uh, and the decision to emigrate and to start studying uh, philosophy? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so to the first question, how did I think about it then? And how do I think about it now? I think it's a similar, uh, similar way of thinking, I suppose. I, I thought of it back then, and I still think of it now, as symptomatic of what I think is the dominant, both liberal and left liberal, and possibly also left Western socialist way of thinking about the end of the Cold War and these re related ideas of the end of history and so on, which is to relate to the history of countries or groups who don't share a straightforward liberal trajectory by thinking of yourself as a kind of moral liberator ready to free people and to free countries from their backwardness and their plight and uh, whichever way you know you, you choose to think about it and so I I was concerned by these re reflections and reactions 
in part because I always knew that in Albania, people knew a lot more about the West than the West knew about Albania. There was a lot of more knowledge from these small countries, usually about this kind of dominating countries or the, um, the hegemonic countries, I suppose, which in the end is, is very unfortunate because hegemonic countries end up making decisions that are very important for the history of these small nations. And yet the small nations have the epistemically much more awareness about what goes on around them, even though they have very little say in how these decisions are made. And I mean, the, the, the story of the left was for me disappointing because I thought there could have been a more productive way of engaging with the history of East European socialism, Albanian including, even though it had a slightly different trajectory from the mainstream, um, other East European countries, which was to think of it as a kind of source of moral learning and historical experience that could be beneficial when thinking about, okay, what did socialism not have in these contexts? What did it lack? Why did it lead to this lack of glaring lack of democracy? Why did it lead to this entrenched bureaucratization? Why did it produce this uh, very severe censorship of dissent, of freedom of thought, and all these sort of freedoms that people were craving in the East? And I felt that by disengaging from all of that, you didn't, it, it was very hard to learn anything from these experiences and by just uh, removing the experiences from the, from the table as though they were just contingent failures of due to the kind of backwardness of these countries or to the uniqueness of their context or whatever, it felt as though the, the tendency was to think that history could never be repeated. And so there was a sense in which the liberal, I guess, hegemonic countries in which the left lived had this claim to know better and claim to do better, which I think is very dangerous when you think about the future. If you're not aware of what the past has produced, and um, I think you could, you're very vulnerable to making the same mistakes and to reproducing the same errors if you don't engage with with the categories. So that was what what brought me to reflect in those terms. Um, the second question about why the narrative ends in my 18th birthday, well, in part because uh, it's a coming of age story. And so it's, it ends with the protagonists maturing in a way, and, and 18th is the age of maturity. Secondly, because it coincides with this year, 1997, of collapse of the liberal, uh, the belief in kind of this liberal set of market freedoms and political freedoms and the um, catastrophe that 97 was in Albania, which was this kind of failure of, um, um, of all the structural reforms to deliver not just basic you know, welfare, but even just basic order. I mean, in 97, there was a collapse of the state in Albania. The state just didn't have monopoly over the use of force. It didn't have, it had lost legitimacy, but it had also just lost the ability to maintain order and peace in a very minimal way. You couldn't go out because you risked being killed by a Kalashnikov bullet. And so it was a very um, symbolic, in a way, moment of failure. And there was this parallel between 1990, where there was a collapse, and 1997, where there was another collapse, and, uh, in, and in which you could compare these situations if, if you had lived through both of them. But you could also see how in one case, as I wrote in my diary uh, back in 97, in one case, in 1990, there seemed to be hope. And in 97, even hope had been lost because what other alternative system of ideas do you look to if you know, you've tried socialism and you've tried liberalism and both of them have worked. So it seemed like a, a good um, summary of what I wanted to do. And the third reason is, I guess, that after, uh, with my studying philosophy, my way of thinking 
took a different shape. And so the experiences were different. The thought processes were different. I could articulate much more clearly my views with the use of theories and categories and so on because of the studies in, in philosophy. And so I didn't want to have any of that and let that determine the narrative in free. I wanted the narrative in free to be as free as possible from all those philosophical constraints. And so again, it made sense to stop before the, in a way, philosophical awareness, before the moment in which there is a more philosophical awareness. Great, thank you so much, Lea. We have been discussing Lea Uppi's new memoir, Free, Coming of Age at the End of History today, which is a truly fascinating read and it raises essential questions from an original and exciting uh, personal angle. Thank you so much, Lea, for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. And thank you everyone for listening. Until the next time.